Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. So I just finished an audiobook about Lady Jane Grey that I wanted to tell you about real quick here. Okay. She came up briefly when we were discussing Queen Elizabeth for our tournament of the most interesting person in history. Queen Elizabeth the, f- the first. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Queen Elizabeth right? the first. Yeah. Yeah, Lady Jane Grey is her like first cousin once removed or second cousin once removed or whatever. Okay. Who was queen for like 13 days before Mary. After Edward VI died and before Mary actually took power, there was a group that kind of put Lady Jane in position Mm. and they were able to kind of control the country-ish for like 13 days before Mary's crew booted them. And I had mentioned, not entirely incorrectly, but I had mentioned that Lady Jane was just kind of someone who never had a lot of agency and was just kind of a victim of circumstance as far as it wasn't her idea. Right. People were just using her for their own ends. So having listened to this book, I would say that's mostly true, but there there, there was a couple of important asterisks, I guess. I wanted to make sure I gave Lady Jane Grey her due, even though that's not where we're at at this point in our podcast, but I still thought it was worth mentioning. Okay. The two big things. So yeah, she was being basically manipulated into this position by ambitious men who just wanted to use her for their own ambitions. And they kind of just saw that, hey, we could use her. Like Even like the main driver to get her on the throne was her father-in-law. Okay. And like even before, he was her father-in-law. Like, I can have her marry my son and then make my son the king. Like, it was all his, him pulling the strings. And he basically convinced Edward the... Because... It wasn't completely out of left field. They had convinced Edward VI to name Lady Jane Grey his successor. So he did. The dying wishes of Edward VI were, Lady Jane Grey should succeed me as queen. Because they convinced him that his his half-siblings, Mary and Elizabeth, were illegitimate and therefore can't inherit my throne. Ah, okay, yeah. Sure. And Mary being the oldest, you have the uh, Catholic issues, and then uh, with her being ahead of Elizabeth. And even Henry VIII's will had said, Edward, my son, first, and then him having no issue, it would go to my daughters. But he actually never re-legitimized his daughters. So he basically said, they're second and third in the line of succession, but also they're still bastards, and I guess we'll just figure that out at some point later in the future. So when Edward is king, it's like, well, they're still illegitimate. And I got these advisors, because remember, he died as a teenager. I got these advisors saying, right. I should name my cousin, who is also a descendant of Henry VII, and is Protestant, and is a legitimate child of her mother, because the claim is actually her mother's. Right. Anyway, so they do that. Jane is just along for the ride the whole time, and is like, okay, I guess I'm queen now. And they do kind of convince her to not fight it. And she's so pious, she's basically like, oh, well, if God has chosen me, oh, I will I will humbly accept. It's my duty to be the head of the church now type thing. Right, because Jane actually liked, okay. Jane actually liked Mary and Elizabeth. Like she had, I don't know how close a relationship they had, like they weren't around each other a lot, but she did respect Mary and Elizabeth and maybe didn't even necessarily agree with them being illegitimate and all those things. But she was just very pious and accepted what the men were telling her. 
And then during the 13, 13 day window she has before Mary's side, you know, shit cans her, uh, her husband. So the two things I was going to say to give her a little more credit is one, she was very, very well educated. This was a smart woman. She was just very pious and not ambitious. So she didn't seek out the crown. She didn't actually want this claim for herself. She just kind of accepted it. But she was very smart, uh-huh. which I didn't give her credit for. And two, she actually, in her limited authority, during her limited window as an uncrowned queen, she put a stop to a lot of her husband's and her father-in-law's ambitions. Because they, right off from the bat, they're like, well, obviously we need to make a crown for your husband as well. And he will be styled king, of course. Like, it was all a power move for them to get him as king. And she was fighting that from the beginning. But she she was the heir, though. Right. So how does he become king? That doesn't make... that. That's not how that works. Exactly. But they were fighting for it. As, oh, they were trying to make it how it works. Yeah, no, right. Exactly. And she... she oh, okay. Jane, who I, again, painted as not particularly assertive, was putting her foot down and actually saying, like, no, that's not happening. I'll make him a duke, but he's not king. Right. So she actually stood up for herself in that regard. So she was definitely more able and assertive and actually might have done a good job than I had given her credit for. She just wasn't ambitious at all. And so then when she does get booted by Mary's mm-hmm. forces, right off the bat, she's like, okay, that's fine too. I never wanted this in the first place. Are we cool? <laughs> and then just kind of left? Well, I mean, it actually almost perfectly parallels Elizabeth to Mary's Queen of Scots is Mary to Lady Jane Grey in a lot of ways. And Mary didn't want to execute Lady Jane Grey but it kind of just got to the point where you kind of have to. Like, yeah. she's a threat to your throne in the same way that Mary Queen of was to Elizabeth. And then even the religious thing is then perfectly flipped because Lady Jane Grey was a strict Protestant and Mary was a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And then it switches with, with Elizabeth and Mary Queen of So it was very, very interesting. And yeah, I just want to give Lady Jane Grey a little more, little more props than I did kind of when I, we mentioned her briefly <laughs> back during the tournament. I'm sure she appreciates it. <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, she does. It was a good book. I'll, I'll send, I'll send, it was called, uh, what was it called? Shoot. It was called like Crown of Blood. I think it was called Crown of Blood. Ooh, that sounds exciting. No, right. The author was actually a guest on Rex Factor, and that's even what put it on my radar. Oh, okay. So today, I'm super excited to talk about Zorro. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think I had told you, and I, I, I never actually did pinpoint it, like, Oh, I don't know how old I was. When I was probably like six or seven, like I was Zorro for Halloween. Like Zorro was big in my childhood. Really? No, right. Because I, but I can't, because I can't, I even asked my what? mom and I wasn't sure wait, what movie, because I hadn't seen the 1940s movie. The 1990s movie weren't, it wasn't out yet, but I, somehow Zorro right. was still on my radar as like a grade school kid. Wasn't there a, I want to say when I was looking through Zorro stuff, that there's a, a movie, like a comedy, like a Zorro comedy from the 70s, maybe? And maybe that was it. Like, I have no memories of the actual show I would have watched. Or maybe there was, like, my mom said maybe there was, like, a TV sh- series uh, in the 70s or 80s, too. And uh, I actually didn't oh, ever okay. look to see what that would have been. But I was aware, like, I, I remember taking my little, I remember being mad because it wasn't, like, a rapier. I had, like, a plastic broadsword. So it was, like, the wrong kind of sword. So I wasn't super happy about that. Yeah, it's close enough. But I still go around making my making my Z's in the in the air, you know, running around the house. All right, so we you watched the mask or sorry, the Mark of Zorro, nineteen forty. There's a yeah sign of Zorro TV series from the fifties. Mm, probably not. There is a Zorro the Avenger, uh, which is a it's just it's kind of like 
our Davy Crockett movie is a movie, but just made up of a bunch of TV episodes smashed together. Oh, huh. Then there's The Mark of Zorro from 1974, which is a TV movie where Frank Langella plays Zorro. Oh, huh. Then there is a movie called Zorro the Gay Blade from 1981, <laughs> which is a parody. I think that's the right. I think that's the comedy one that I'm thinking about. Okay. And then yeah, then after that you got the Mask of Zorro, Legend of Zorro. That's the two Antonio Banderas uh, Zorro movies. Man, that's yeah. I'm so. I'm not certain then because like I said, that doesn't quite time out right. I mean, maybe I was seeing the Frank Langella thing. I I feel like a TV show would have made more sense, but I don't think we were. I don't think we did any channels where I would have seen the 50s TV show. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I just was somehow aware of Zorro. Could it have been a literary thing? Were you like reading a book or did your yeah, mom read right, you dude. a book or something? Because, I mean, he's he's been a literary character for 100 years. Right. And so that kind of just speaks to who Zorro is in the zeitgeist, that I was aware of him right. when I was six or seven, and don't, we can't even figure out why. But that's because everyone knows who Zorro is. It's right. It's it's almost like a, it's almost like saying, oh, when I was six years old, I went dressed as Batman. And someone asking, well, which, what Batman? Is it from the right. comics? Is it from the cartoon? Is it from the, you know... The Val Kilmer movie? Is it, you know, Michael Keaton? It's like, Batman is just, he's everywhere. Right, he's, he's just, just Batman. He's a very yeah, yeah. popular pop culture figure. I'm Batman. And Zorro is kind of like a like a 19th century Mexican Batman. Well, no, that that's even kind of in my notes. That Zorro is basically a proto version of, well, I was going to say proto, oh, sorry, proto version of Batman. And also he's kind of a reimagining of Robin Hood. He's, he's kind of very much in that yes. vein. Well, we, we'll, uh. We'll talk about the uh, the actual historical inspirations for Zorro, but uh, yeah, 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 Robin Hood definitely. So we did. We actually have two movies to talk about today, which I'm kind of excited that we decided to do it that way, and I think it makes sense to talk about them chronologically because they came out, you know, one in 1940, one in 1998, and then they also are set one before the other. 1941 is actually set. And they made the 1998 movie in such a way that it almost could be a sequel to the 1940 movie, and it would actually work. Yeah. You did watch both of them, I, I hope, right? <laughs> uh, no, I actually only watched the 1998 one. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about the 1940 version. I'm going to tell you about the 1940 movie then. Okay. Okay. So this is, uh, this actually ties back to like the roots of Zorro in, in the first place. So Zorro was, did first appear in like this, uh, oh, I forget the year, but it was like this pulp novel. Not quite a graphic novel, but like a an action little novelette kind of thing from the 19-teens or 20s, right. I think, called The Curse of Capistrano. And that's where the character first evolved, or was created. And this film is specifically based off of that story. So the 1940 film is basically the movie version of the first ever story Zorro appeared in, if that makes sense. Okay. So we, yeah, so we actually see him. I'll kind of give you a brief rundown here then. So... We see him at a fencing school in Madrid. So he's actually like over in Spain to start off with. But he's from California and has gone to Spain for like training and stuff because California at the time was still part of the Spanish Empire because we have not yet gotten to the Mexican Civil War. Or sorry, not Civil War. The Mexican Revolution where they break away from Spain. So this is a California kid, John uh, Cadet Vega at the time. He's over in Spain just to kind of learn some stuff. So he heads back to California, and he's kind of expecting to be bored. Like, there's not a major Native American uh, conflict to deal with. Everything's just kind of pretty chill. As he as he arrives, and kind of says he's the son of the Akalde, which is what they call, like, the local 
mayors. It's kind of like a combo mayor slash judge. They call them the Akalde. And he's like, oh, yeah, hey, my uh, my dad's the Akalde. Can you give me a ride to town or whatever? And every time he mentions his dad's the Akalde, they all look at him like, oh, yeah, oh, yes, sir, right away, sir. Uh, uh, uh. Like they, they're very visibly scared that this is the Akalde's son. Right. And he's like, this, this is weird. What's going on? Like, because he's been over in Spain for years. Well, it comes to find out that his dad was forced to resign as Akalde, and the new Akalde kind of rules with an iron fist. And that's why everyone was freaking out because he was saying he was the son of like the main bad guy of the movie. Okay. Not realizing that that's not his dad anymore. So he actually does a really cool thing that you don't get at all from the 1998 version. He almost plays it like, actually, this is where the Batman comparison is spot on. He plays up like he's the lazy, rich playboy who doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Uh, so anytime okay. stuff is coming up with, you know... You know, the Akalde's ruthlessly dealing with the peasants or whatever. And he just acts like he couldn't care less. And like, when are we going to the spa? And he's just like, acts so above any of the struggles of the people in California. Right. So then when Zorro appears, there's no reason to think it's Diego Viega or whatever. I probably got the names all wrong here. But it's no reason to think it's this guy because... He doesn't care about any of that stuff. So who's this Zorro guy? Like, no one's making the connection, even though they both show up in town at the same time. Right. But he does start kind of putting up petitions. He kind of, you know, calls out the Alcalde as being, like, an enemy of the people and, you know, basically starts stealing gold from the Alcalde because it's all the tie taxes and stuff to give back to the people. So there's the Robin Hood thing, putting the mark of Zorro out there for everything. So now he becomes wanted. And then, I forget if it's his daughter, but I think it's, like, the new Alcalde's daughter is, of course, then the girl he starts crushing on and she's obsessed with the new kind of heroic Zorro type. So the bad guy Alcalde is trying to marry his daughter to Diego, but she doesn't like Diego because he's the guy who's aloof and doesn't act like he cares about anybody. But she's also secretly crushing on Zorro because he's the hero of the people. And so it's like, she's being arranged to marry the guy she doesn't like, not realizing it's secretly the guy she's crushing on. It's actually a really clever and fun movie. Is it uh, is it Esperanza? Because that's in, in the ninety eight movie. That's that's Anthony Hopkins' character. That well, Anthony Hopkins playing the same guy. That's his wife. Is Esperanza the daughter in the nineteen forty movie? Uh it looks like it's her name is Lolita in the nineteen forty one. Okay, so it's not necessarily a literal sequel, but it's a, definitely a spiritual sequel. Uh he, he, you know, he does kind of ultimately reveal himself to the girl, so she realizes what's going on, and then it's just kind of then, just, it is, it is ultimately a swashbuckling, you know, movie, and I haven't seen a ton of Tyrone Power stuff, but he was definitely a swashbuckling type guy, who was, uh, he was never nominated for an Oscar, several of his films were nominated for Best Picture, the other guy I recognized, the Friar, the, uh, Robin Hood parallels are kind of interesting, like, he does kind of get help from, like, the local monk who, like, is helping hide the money he's stolen until he can redistribute it to the people, and that friar had a very distinctive voice, like, beyond gruff, it's just like, well, okay, Zorro, if that's what you, like, it was just a very kind of distinctive <laughs> big guy who I recognized and looked okay. him up, he was actually Friar Tuck in the 1938 Robin Hood. Ah, okay. It was, it was from Winfield, Kansas, which I thought was kind of funny, too. Oh, no kidding. But again, like this is the guy who was like, you know, he's probably getting up there in age in, in 1940. He was born in the 1880s, I think. Yeah, so he defeats the bad guys, and, you know, and they, he gets his dad renamed the Akalde again, which is what the people wanted. So it's kind of, you know, it's the, like the victory there. So it was really kind of cute. There's actually even similar themes. Like a lot of the stuff 
in the 1998 version is almost even callbacks to the 1940 version. And there's like a lot of parallels, I, I, I thought, throughout. As far as looking at the history stuff, and I want to talk about a couple of the vocab, <laughs> I have vocab. There's like some uh, words they use. I mentioned a quality already. I mean, and we mentioned the, okay. the book, the book it's based on was called The, the Curse of Capistrano. So Capistrano is a city in Italy, but there was a San Juan Capistrano is a missionary slash city in California that was founded in 1776, named for St. John of Capistrano. So basically you have this saint from Capistrano, mm-hmm. Italy, and then they named the Spanish mission in California after that saint. And then this film set in California, or this book about Zorro set in California that's the reason Capistrano is even mentioned, even though it's like an Italian city name. And then another thing they mention in the film is uh, the group, the Caballeros. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar? What the word Caballero is like cowboy. Oh, okay. And that makes it so. Yeah. I was thinking it meant like an ethnic group. And what I was researching, it looked like it was more like a word for like gentlemen, but that would make sense what you're saying too. If it's like the men of the community, the cowboys, that would kind of fit, I guess. Oh, okay. You're, you're right. It It's a, I guess in, in Spanish, it can be cowboy slash gentleman. It can be both. So it so it looks like in Spanish it means like a gentleman. Um, it even says like synonymous with like a knight, like uh, someone who's like noble and upstanding. But it says also on the I just just to double check myself my Spanish. It says in the southwestern U.S. it can mean a horseman, which that's the the root of the word. Oh, okay, okay, like the etymology. Yeah, yeah. So. But yeah, a gentleman. Um, and then I was familiar with the word because there's a there's a the 1944 Disney cartoon, The Three Caballeros, with Donald Duck and his two Mexican bird friends. Which, if you go to like Disney World and Epcot Center, there's even like a restaurant with a little ride that goes through with like the three caballeros are like serenading you and stuff during the ride, or the ride is even anyway. So mm. yeah, so that's where I'm familiar with the word caballeros. And then they also use peon, or I think they said peon. I'm just so used to hearing peon as an insult that it was weird about mm-hmm. them talking about, like, we must protect the peons. And, but, like, it basically just means farmer. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, call it like a peasant. Yes. Where, like, you could use it just, like, as a descriptor, like all of these common folk. Or the peasants. Who are not the nobility. But you can also use it as an insult, like. Yeah. And, I, and I'm so used to peon. Get away from me, peasant. Yeah, exactly. And right. peon has evolved into an insult. But it's used in yeah. this movie, and again, I think they say peon, because that'd be more like the Mexican spelling, because uh, the word does seem to be a Spanish origin. The other thing they mention is, I think it's his dad saying something to him at one point to kind of like get his pride up, and he's like, the blood of the Hidalgo is in your veins. And Hidalgo is a word we've heard a lot. It's a state in Mexico. It's a mm-hmm. Viggo Mortensen movie. And so I was trying to figure out, like, oh, well, what's the history of the Hidalgo? But basically... Well, the Vigo movie is just the name of his horse. <laughs> the horse is just named Hidalgo. Right, yeah. And then it actually is just like a term for Spanish nobility. So they're in California. If he's saying you have the mm. blood of the Hidalgo, it just means like, yes, we're Californians now, but you have Spanish noble blood is basically essentially what he's saying by saying he has uh, Hidalgo blood in his veins there. I don't know if we've exactly said it yet, but like <laughs> Zorro is completely fictional. This is just a completely fabricated story set in the world of Spanish-controlled California, right on the cusp of it becoming Mexican-controlled California. So before we may talk about 
your film, since it is technically set a little bit later, I want to talk about the history of California a little bit. Okay. Because specifically, your uh, so the 1998 film does start in 1821, but then jumps ahead 20 years later after like the opening sequence, right? And right. the 1940 film doesn't actually have a specific time period that it mentions. And when you kind of research Zorro as a character himself, it seems like maybe even the original story, it was intentionally left vague that all this is just happening sometime between the 1770s and 1820s. Like it's intentionally just kind of timeless and just set in this Spanish California. California, like most of North America and what is today the United States, was originally populated by Native Americans. And California actually had arguably the most diverse groups like it just had like more different tribes and more different languages and california was very very diverse with its native american tribes the term california so we're actually not a hundred percent where the word comes from which is kind of i thought that was kind of interesting so the best working theory is that there was a 16th century novel and the author named a fictional island island yes in his book california and so when they first, oh. when the Spanish first discovered Baja California, they thought it was an island. Because it was a really long, thin peninsula. Yes. It went, goes on forever up in the, that Gulf of California, and they just assumed it was an island. Uh, so they named that island, sorry, they named Baja California, California. Do you watch um, Johnny Harris on YouTube? I know you've recommended it before, so I'm sure I've seen a video or two, but I, I not religiously. He just made a video about california like early california specifically why for like 100 i mean literally i think it was over 100 years probably over 200 years people were drawing maps of north america with california on it as an island ah, okay. and it all has to do with that book where the guy mentions this island that's populated the the whole thing was that like the island was supposedly populated by like very tall and beautiful black-skinned women huh and and there were no men, and they had like all these riches, and and it, it was a, a fictional novel. But there was an explorer, and I I forget which explorer it is, but it's like one, a, a famous explorer. Oh, huh. You should watch the video because it's actually super interesting. <laughs> but basically, he on one of his expeditions is like, oh, and while I'm you know in America, I'm gonna look for this island of California, which Johnny Harris in the video says it would be like going to the UK and saying I'm gonna go look for Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then you find something in the name of Hogwarts. Yeah. Right, it's technically set in a real place. Like, Hogwarts is actually in the UK in the story, and the UK is a real place, but Hogwarts doesn't exist. Right. But the the work of fiction is very popular, and so it's <laughs> like, that's that's what this explorer was doing. Yeah, that's kind of funny. So then, obviously, as they realized, then they name what is today California was Alta California, and what they thought was an island right. becomes Baja, which is basically just high or low or top or bottom. So it's basically you have Upper California and Lower California. It's just in Spanish. Yeah, right. And then obviously the upper is now dropped and we just call it California. So Spain colonized California much later than Mexico. Uh, it had been initially explored, but it was just considered too far out of the way and not really worth messing with. So they had mostly left it alone until about the 1760s. Which you think only that I mean shoot only a decade and a half before we start getting the Declaration of Independence. Like is even Spain hadn't really done much with California yeah. until the US is being formed. And so it's mostly getting dotted with uh Spanish missions. 
just kind of with the purpose of converting the natives. So you kind of just have these series of Spanish missions in California that pop up. They spaced them about a day's ride apart. Each one had a few monks and a handful of soldiers to protect them. But then they started recruiting and converting the natives to work on the farms and just kind of you kind of get some growing communities out of these Spanish missions. That's basically how California started 1760s. You also have uh, the reason you have a lot of these clay roofs out there in California. Of course, I guess you have them in Arizona too. But they were saying it was because it was to prevent them from catching fire when the natives got mad and attacked instead. And so it was basically one, they wanted to make sure they had fireproof oh, really? uh, missions. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that was basically the state of California. The missions grow of, of various sizes. But, I mean, shoot, even in the, by 1820, Los Angeles was only 650 people. Like, it was a very slow hmm. process uh, populating California. And in 1821 is when the Mexican War of Independence from Spain ends. And it mostly doesn't even involve California. Mexico wasn't concerned with California. It was almost just like, yes, Spain owns that too, but no one lives there. So the Mexican War of Independence was like, oh, and I guess California is kind of part of us, but like it wasn't involved in the war. People from California weren't necessarily contributing. Mexico didn't care about California. But part of the uh, the treaty after the war, Spain did give California to Mexico, which I should say California then that was given to Mexico by Spain was much more than modern day California. It extends in like Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico and part of Colorado. Like it was mm-hmm. a bigger California territory. But Mexico kind of just mostly left it alone to kind of keep doing what it was doing. California didn't really want to be part of Mexico. But also Santa Ana is still around at this time. And so it's kind of just this early Wild West and almost like a feudal system sets up in California where you have like the rancheros where like the lords and like it's almost like this late medieval thing with a sparse population. And California is not even, like I said, it's, it's kind of just its own unique thing. It wasn't really Mexico. It wasn't part of the United States yet. It's almost like a, you know, 19th century feudal world out there in California, which kind of makes sense that if you're going to set a Zorro story in that kind of world with Zorro as a Robin Hood, like it makes sense that it's almost like this uh, late medieval kind of thing. Let's, uh before we get into then maybe after that, because the Mexican War of Independence gets us into the beginning of your film, which is kind of at the end of my film. Well, the Independence thing isn't actually part of the 1940 film, really. Kind of, I kind of mentioned it. Not only Zorro fictional, every character in both these movies. Oh, sorry, in my movie, you actually do have some real people, or at least some legendary people to talk about. A couple, yeah. Uh, but like the governors are all made up, and even like they try to use Los Angeles as kind of the focus of these films. But like the capital city at the time was Monterey, so. Just a fictional story, but in a very realistic setting, I guess. The world of California at the time was kind of what we see. And the, I mean, the corruption wasn't as as extreme with the Acalde, but he definitely would have had his favorite rancheros that got preferential treatment and were oppressing the peons or peasants. Like, yeah, I think that's that's kind of, it's kind of gives the right vibe. There just was no Zorro to rescue them, but they probably weren't as fiercely abused as the villains in Zorro's stories do. And it is actually, and I didn't watch this one, and it has horrible reviews. The second Antonio Banderas Zorro, The Legend of Zorro, yeah. it actually gets into California statehood. And I've never actually watched it, but just looking at the Wikipedia, it is actually about the California debate around 1850 to become a state. But we can maybe talk about that after right. we talk about the 98 movie. Yeah, so the, the 98 movie starts off, like you said, in the 1820s. In the the little pre 
movie text, it says uh, it's 1821. And we see a middle-aged Don Diego de la Vega as Zorro freeing some some peasants from being executed. And uh, he actually escapes. The main bad guy, Don Rafael Montero, basically set up the whole execution, just picked three random guys from the crowd of peasants outside of his palace to execute to try and capture Zorro. But Zorro shows up, save the guys, and he gets away with the help of a young, like, you know, maybe 11 or 12-year-old Alejandro and Joaquin Murrieta, who Alejandro is Antonio Banderas later on in the movie. So he saves the guys from getting executed or whatever, escapes, but then Montero shows up at his house. He's not in his Zorro getup anymore. Uh, confronts him, tries to arrest him. One of his men accidentally kills his wife, who Montero also, like, apparently there was history there where he wanted to marry her, but she didn't like him, and she married Diego instead, which I... it was. Is there anything of that in the 1940s movie, uh, uh, like a love triangle between... Zorro and the bad guy. No, like you said, the the Diego's love interest even has a different name. So okay, even though the Diego character, the Anthony Hopkins character, is supposed to be the same, it does seem like they kind of altered the the women in the story to not necessarily connect. Gotcha. Anyway, his wife is murdered. He's basically let go. He's like incapacitated. I think he like gets hit on the head or something. Or no, he's not. Like he's a uh, he's imprisoned and almost. It's it's kind of like a. Count of Monte Cristo story. Oh, I that's in my notes. This whole movie parallels the Count of Monte Cristo. Not not one for one, but tons of parallels. Okay, his wife gets killed, and then he takes Montero takes Diego's daughter, who's like a newborn baby, and to raise as his own because he says, you know, oh, you know, I was supposed to marry her. You know, your child should be mine, and takes her and imprisons Diego. And then we flash forward like twenty years, Joaquin. And uh, Alejandro Marietta are like bandits. Well, lovable bandits. Yeah, they're, but they, they talk about being thieves, but then they're also like scamming the military guys that are trying to capture them. Okay, yeah. That's like the whole scene with Alejandro and Joaquin and then their friend, Three Finger Jack. Right. Who is also a somewhat historical character. Oh, huh. But they are pursued by Harry Love, who kills Joaquin, beheads him, and kills or uh, captures Three Finger Jack, but Alejandro gets away. And then the rest of the movie is basically Alejandro, who is Antonio Banderas, meets up with Diego after Diego escapes from prison. Diego stops Alejandro from fighting Harry Love out in the street when he's drunk one day, and then kind of takes him under his wing and trains him up to be Zorro. And... Yeah, that's that's basically the the gist of the rest of the movie. There's also a subplot where Montero is secretly mining a bunch of gold with all of his the disappeared ones, basically all the people that he like just random people that he like captures in prisons and makes them in like forced slave laborers. They're mining a bunch of gold so that they can buy California from Santa Ana and make California its own country. Right. But again, all all fictional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was actually a Joaquin Marietta who is the inspiration or thought to be the inspiration or one of the inspirations for Zorro in real life, like the original Zorro literary character. Yes. Uh, from the 20s. Which kind of makes it all kind of weirdly circular. Yeah. 
but he's not Zorro in this movie. Right. Because Joaquin Marietta, even though there is some historical evidence that he might have existed, his historicity as a whole is actually kind of dubious. Well, kind of like Robin Hood. Exactly. Almost exactly like Robin Hood. Because there's like, at the same time that he would have existed, there is also like fictional writings about Joaquin. So it's like, who knows what is real and what isn't. But it, he, it's possible that there was an actual Joaquin Marietta. Right. If he did exist, he was said to have been born in Mexico uh, in 1829 and then moved to California during the gold rush to try and make money, just like everyone else. I mean, that's why like most of the people that were moving to California were moving to California in the late 1840s and early 1850s right. to try and um, get gold. Supposedly, he turned to a life of crime after experiencing a bunch of like race-based violence at the hands of other miners who were jealous of how successful he was. Huh. I mean, there's like stories about how he was beaten and whipped and his wife was like sexually assaulted and like a lot of horrible stuff. But again, don't know if that's real or legend. It might all be invented, right? Yeah. But there was a gang uh, or a band of bandits called the Five Joaquins <laughs> because it was five guys named Joaquin. And they were joined by their friend Three Finger Jack. Ah. So Three Finger Jack is a somewhat historical character, as well as Joaquin Marietta being a bandit. Alejandro Marietta, the Antonio's ba- Antonio Banderas character from the movie, is completely fictional. He was made up from the movie. Okay. Which is so weird. Why not make him Joaquin? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So in response to all of the horse thieving, that was their big thing, was stealing horses and then rounding up wild Mustangs in California and then riding them south to Sonora and selling them in Mexico. So that was their, that was their grift, was they were horse thieves. And then there was also, you know, along the way they would redistribute money and that's why he's called the Robin Hood of the West, or at least that's what the stories say. Right. That he would use some of this money to give back to the, you know, the peons. So in response to their gang activity, the California State Legislature hires a guy named Harry Love, who they make the first guy in charge of the California Rangers in 1853. And the California Rangers is like the first law enforcement agency in California. So California was already a state. That's why I was confused because... No, no, no. This... I think it was still a, I think it was still a territory at this time. What what year did you say? Or or maybe it was when it was still 1853. Yeah, California became a state in 1850. Okay, so it's so it was a state. Okay, it was a state at this time. But the film is set before that. That's why I was confused though too. So you have a film set in 41 that has a right. guy from the 1850s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They fudge the timeline. Yeah, they fudge the timeline. Okay. Yeah. So Harry Love, he was born in Vermont in 1809. Reportedly, he had known Davy Crockett and Sam Houston and also had a brother who died at the Alamo. Hmm. And he himself was a veteran of the Mexican-American War in the the U.S. Army, which is one of the reasons why he was put in charge of the California Rangers, because he was like a well-respected war veteran. Okay. So in, in May 1853, the California Rangers are established. Harry Love's put in charge of them, and their job is to go get the five Joaquins. Huh. So he pursues them there is a battle with some guys <laughs> in july of 1853 and three of them are killed one of them was supposedly one of the other joaquins one of them was three finger jack 
and one of them was supposedly Joaquin Marietta. Okay. Now, in the telling of how this happened in real life, like we see in the movie, he beheads Joaquin Marietta oh. and keeps his head in a, in a jar of brandy to preserve it. That's real? That's real. So that's why they can't have Joaquin Marietta be Zorro because he got his head cut off by Harry Love in 1853. Well, well in the movie said 13 or 12 years before that, but yeah. <laughs> well, right, 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 right. But I mean, in real life, that's that's what actually happened to Joaquin okay. Marietta. Huh. In addition, later on in the movie, when Three Finger Jack is in the mine and he like kind of loses it and tries to attack Harry Love and Harry Love guns him down. Yeah. And then he, Carrie Love cuts off his hand and puts that in a jar too. Yeah. That's also real. Huh. So he pickled the head of Joaquin Marietta, pickled the hand of Three Finger Jack, and the other guy that they killed, he cut his head off too, but apparently it started to go bad too fast and they had to bury it. But he kept both the head and the hands and put them on display and charged people a dollar a piece to come and see them. But the only reason you can't see them today is because they were destroyed during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake fire. What? Yeah. That, I mean, not, not that I would want to see them, but it's crazy that they lasted, you know, 70 years or whatever, 50 years before. Yeah. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah, that's, so that's why in, in the movie they had to have a fictional character, Alejandro. Who names his son Joaquin. True. But it, it's... It was one of the weirder things, like one of the more bizarre things, because the rest of the movie is kind of like cookie cutter, swashbuckling action movie. But then there's this like that whole part of it is like, this is so bizarre and out of pocket. Like, I wonder whose idea it was, who who in the in the writer's room was like, hey, we should have this guy cut people's heads off and put them in brandy jars and like pickle people's heads. But that was actually just what actually happened to this guy <laughs> now it is disputed there are some people like for instance there was one guy who wrote that he talked to joaquin's sister who had witnessed the head and said that it wasn't joaquin so even in real life there is like this whole thing of you know was that really joaquin was it really not was it just another guy because there were other people that said oh no i'd 15 years later, I met Joaquin Marietta, and he was a middle-aged man, and so there's no way that he could have been killed in 1853, but... Well, and we're not even 100% sure Joaquin Marietta even existed, right? right exactly, yeah. It yeah, could have just been yeah. some other guy, and that, and it was, you know, the maybe it was like a Dread Pirate Roberts thing where, like, oh, this, some yeah, other guy yeah. was just using the name, or right. or it was just one of the other guys named Joaquin. <laughs> like, the, the, it's, the name of the gang is the Five Joaquins. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I, the the, mo- the 1998 movie's average at best, but it's kind of interesting. Interesting that it has so many more historical nuggets versus the 1940 movie is not historical at all. But I guess that's because it's based off a book that just has no historicalness to it either. Yeah, the 1940 movie is actually really it, it's really good. Uh, I would say it's I I did watch the, the both and it's 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 the better film. I did think it was crazy in well. Crazy slash a couple of things that were not believable in the 1998 version. One, when he, the uh, love guy has suspicions that Antonio Manderas is Zorro, is, or, or, or sorry, or is related to, right. is a Marietta. He, he he thinks he's the Marietta brother that he kind of, that eluded him earlier. Yeah. And so he pulls out the jar to kind of say like, hey, this is what happens to my enemies, to see to see his reaction. Right. And not, and not only does Antonio Manderas not flinch, he drinks the headwater. He- drinks the wine 
Yes. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't have to be like, well, because that's not my brother. I'm totally okay doing this. No, it's still a human head in there. I, oh, yeah. that was so cringy. And uh, I just, uh, I hated that so much. <laughs> I guess that doesn't make it bad. But I just, well, one, I didn't think anyone could not flinch. Two, it's okay to flinch at that. It doesn't prove that's your brother. Like, anybody could be revolted and that wouldn't prove your brother. Okay, but my bigger issue is, He's training with uh, Anthony Hopkins, who's, again, Diego from the, we'll say, from the original Zorro movie. And he goes from, basically, what is a sword? To, I'm the best swashbuckling hero ever, at about a week and a half. Like, it just seemed way too much improvement in way too short a time period to be remotely realistic. And I get you have movie montages, but you need to have him, when he's little, playing with the sword. He needs to have some background. Not just go from, is this how you hold it? To, I can now do perfect Zs on any surface. I don't know. I, I just thought that was too hokey. Yeah, but, you know, how else are you going to do that? <laughs> like, how else are you going to show that in the movie? Yeah, yeah, whatever. But, uh, but like, even, like, in the 1940 version, like, the sword fights are legit good. Like, I was watching the sword fights. I'm like, oh, yeah. wow, this is a good sword fight. But the sword fighting in the 98 one is... No, true, <laughs> true. I, I just thought it was... It maybe wasn't even so much that it was better in the 1940 version. It was more just like maybe it's, it was unexpected that it would be so good in a movie from 1940. Yeah. Versus a lot of times, you know, yeah. again, this uses the stage stuff and just I've seen a lot of crappy fight scenes in old movies, but this sword, the sword fighting was like, oh dang, like this is a really well choreographed. Like they're going at it. Like they were moving so quick. I, I was very very impressed. And yeah, so we didn't we didn't watch the 2005 Legend of Zorro. It gets into California statehood, which again is kind of confusing because all the love stuff you mentioned in real life is in 53, which is after. It all happens it's after. It's after. Yeah. So that's a little bit kind of like I said, they messed with the timeline. So kind of continuing where I left off from my discussion of California when it kind of becomes part of Mexico, even if reluctantly by both parties where neither Mexico or California really want that relationship to continue. You're also then, this all times out perfectly then with the whole U.S. manifest destiny thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't do a deep, deep dive on this, but from what I gathered, it kind of even ties back to Texas. And then when you get to President Polk, who was a big Manifest Destiny guy, it looks like he essentially wanted to pick a war with Mexico as a land grab. And so he was kind of looking for an excuse. And the excuse comes during the whole Texas thing we had talked about, where you know, Texas was independent for about 10 years before we officially annexed them. And then even both before and after annexation, there was a border dispute. So even when Mexico said, hey, Texas is still part of Mexico, it also disagreed on where the border of the Texas territory was. So there, we, we know it's the Rio Grande today. There's another river. Oh, I don't know if it's 30 miles. Let's say 30 to 100 miles north of that. I forget what that, that river is called. Mexico said, no, that's the Texas border. And so with already having like Mexico angry about this dispute over, hey, you can't just annex Texas, that's a Mexican state. But also we may be willing to accept it with this border. Polk sends troops into basically north of the Rio Grande, south of where Mexico considers the border and just kind of just waits because then what happens? Of course, the Mexican troops attack them because they say they're in Mexico. But right. we say they're in the United States. But it gives Polk an excuse to go to Congress and be like, we just got attacked by Mexico in our own country. So right. the Congress is like, well, I guess we're going to declare war on Mexico. And so that, like, that's the start of the Mexican-American War. 
it was kind of what's not like Mexico wasn't actually in a good spot to go to war. They had too much economic strife at the time. And so there's kind of just sporadic fighting all over the course of a couple of years. And of course, as soon as we declare war over this little strip of land of Texas, Polka Media is like, send troops out west because it really was just a land grab. Like, we declare war in Mexico over Texas, send troops to California because <laughs> all I actually want to do is take over all their land. So then the, it was the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, where Mexico then did cede most of what was uh, the California territory that we talked about to the United States. So that was the California, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, parts of Colorado. The only thing that wasn't included was that little sliver at the bottom of New Mexico and Arizona you're probably familiar with. That kind of came a little bit later. And then the debate was whether California, now a United States territory, had to decide decide whether or not it would become a state or not. And for those who are thinking, well, obviously you would want to become a state, keep in mind, another U.S. territory today is Puerto Rico. Right. So all territories do not become states automatically. And so I guess that 2005 film does get into that debate and kind of makes the whole plot, I think it's not from what I was reading, it revolves around debates and political maneuvering behind the scenes to get the vote passed to become a state, which it ultimately does in 1850, becoming the 31st state of the Union. So just one more additional little nugget about uh, Harry Love. So he did die in 1868, kind of anticlimactically, he was trying to break up a fight and got in a scuffle with somebody and his gun accidentally went off and ah. shot him right through the armpit. And then he, he died the next day. Uh, so that's how that's how Harry Love met his end. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, which I brought up a little bit ago, was the Count of Monte Cristo vibes that I got from this movie. Yes, yes. Like I said, they were throughout. Specifically, the prison break, which is like exactly the prison ba- break oh. from Count of Monte Cristo. Like, yes. another prisoner dies. Yes. He- Take like incapacitates a guard, unlocks a cell, goes and gets that guy, puts him in his cell, then goes and gets in the dead guy's cell. They wrap him up, take him, you know, bury him, basically, yeah. like take him out, bury him, and then that's how he escapes. And that's like literally, that's literally the exact same thing that Ma- Edmund Dantes does in Count of Monte Cristo. He, the other prisoner dies, he switches places with them, then gets taken out of his cell, and that's how he escapes Chateau Deef. Like it's the exact same thing. And yeah. I was like, hey. This is plagiarism. Oh, yeah. Now, hey, in Count of, in Count of Monte Cristo, he's thrown into the water. It's, it's, <laughs> that's true. Okay, good point. Good point. But no, right. Definitely the same uh, same method of, of escape. And it wasn't even just that. Like, even the whole, like, years later revenge and, like, the twist when he has to, like, try to figure out, to let the daughter know that he's actually your father. She So his daughter meets him oh, as right. a servant to Zorro or to... Alejandro Marietta, she thinks he's his, uh, right. Diego's preparing to be his servant, so he can kind of get close and right. while they're doing all the shenanigans, you know, all the plot stuff for the movie. And so she meets him in that capacity, and he tries to strike up a friendship with her. And then again, it kind of comes out like who her actual father is. That it's only, it's only kind of set up because her father they had come back from Spain, and she thinks she was born in Spain. And then everyone's like, basically, like you're a dead ringer for your mother. Like to the point that like all the locals right. are like, you are your mother's daughter. You're the kid we know they had yeah. with the Diego. And she's like, what are you talking about? I was born in Spain. Right. And they're like, no, nah, you aren't. You're that lady's daughter because you look exactly yeah. like her. Yeah, it is very similar then to 
Edmund, Dantes. Yes, and Mercedes and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and trying to connect with the, you know, because that's actually his kid. But yeah. And then one more, one more little, uh, just like random little historical nugget on the, uh, on the California flag. So we're talking about California statehood. Yeah. And there was a brief period of time where there was like an independence movement in California for it to be its own country, kind of like in Texas. And that is why even to this day, there is a single star on the California flag. That's the lone star of California. And it's like a solidarity thing with Texas. That's the other lone star state. Because it's like a, huh. oh, we're an independent, independent spirit type thing. And it harkens back to the independence movement uh, in the 1840s. Yes. The other thing I was going to say it was worth noting was it kind of goes unnoticed or untalked about that Russia had extensive claims in North America. Obviously, we know that Alaska used to be Russian territory and that was bought by the United States. I and mean, that's a whole Seward's Folly thing. Like he basically... We thought he wasted money buying Alaska, but it turns out Alaska had lots of oil and it ended up being worth it. But Russia actually had uh, territory all the way down through like British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and even into Northern California. So like there were Russian settlements almost as far south as San Francisco. Oh, really? Yeah, it kind of just got to where, and again, I cannot mention Spain really wasn't messing with it. So kind of during that time before Spain tried to, you know, started kind of building up all this mission system uh, and working their way north. Russia had plenty, had lots of colonies, but it kind of just got to where it just wasn't worthwhile to maintain them. Because yes, you are kind of Alaska is very, very close to Russia, but it's not very, very close to like where all the Russian people live. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because it's Siberia. Like it's right. It's basically the Russian version of Alaska across from Alaska. It's just cold and desolate yeah. in Siberia and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of just got to where. They kind of kept claiming a lot of that stuff, but outside of Alaska, they just couldn't have, they just couldn't hold on to, to any of it. So it wasn't even like it was ever bought, sold, traded. It was just basically like abandoned. The Russians just couldn't uh, maintain it. But I, I thought it was interesting they had settlements that far south. So the history of gold in California times out too. So obviously San Francisco 49ers, that's because of the gold rush of 1849, a year before they right. become a state, a few years before the love and the Marietta stuff down in the Southern California. So gold is definitely a big part of the history of California. And then what ultimately brings in uh, all the white people, all the British descended Americans out east. So you, you kind of forget, too, when California becomes a state in 1850, it's like on an island, essentially. If you're going to look at a map of the United States, it's not connected to any other state. Right. So it was kind of out of order as far as the expansion west of states go. We had a lot of territory, but it was kind of this isolated state. You have this gold rush, and then that kind of has the population boom as people go out there seeking their fortune. So I thought it was interesting because there was this gold mine in the 1998 film, which one is kind of ridiculous. How would Santa Ana not know about it? But at the same time, like Mexico really didn't have a lot to do with California. Now, obviously, I do think word would have gotten to him. It's just it's too big of an operation to hide. But it was kind of isolated enough. Yeah, maybe something like that could close to happen. Um, and actually, the first gold mines in California were in Los Angeles County not up north by San Francisco. Oh, really? Uh, so there was gold in in that area. I was, I was kind of hoping to do or find something like interesting about, you know, gold mining or whatever. There's not really, really too much, actually. So it sounds like gold is actually in trace amounts all over the world. It's just not worth your time to dig it out of the ground if it's not extra concentrated. Like, I could probably go dig up a park in Chini here and technically you could find traces of gold, but you're basically doing a thousand dollars worth of digging to find three cents worth of gold so it's not worth it 
Yeah. So there are certain pockets just kind of through sheer chance of millions and millions of years of geologic time, things shift with Earth's crust and you kind of end up with certain pockets around the world that have an unusually high concentration of gold where it is actually worth getting in California and then the mountains of California and how they were formed just happened to be one of the places on Earth with a high concentration of gold. So that's why you had all the gold rushes out in California over the years there. But it really is just a matter of like getting it out of the ground. And like it, it was, it's, there's different processes and I, there's no reason to itemize how gold is mined. It's like panning that you see in the movies is mm-hmm. kind of a slow way. There's obviously big industrial ways. So it's probably similar, more similar to what you see in, in the, in the film. Was it, wasn't the panning, the panning wasn't necessarily to, I mean, you could get gold that way, but oh, true. That's that's to see if it's worth setting up a larger operation. Yeah, right. It was it was mostly like a yeah, like a testing thing to see. Oh, is it is the concentration pretty high here? And then we can right. Like, that's true. okay. This I'm I'm panning a decent amount of gold here, so now I'm going to start digging here and then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Actually, there is uh, one of Scruggs. the vignettes in Ballad of Buster Scruggs is like like it's basically like the first twenty minutes of that of that short film is just Tom Waits panning for gold and then digging through, and it shows, like, how he digs and then how he marks each spot and how he, like, determines where the gold... Like, it's actually pretty educational. Yeah, yeah. But but you can kind of see, if you don't have a large concentration, why it's just not worth all that work. Right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, not a lot of... Some historical characters, no historical events, but yeah, definitely an interesting kind of thing, and we just, and just kind of... California is now... Now in our story here on our timeline. Okay, well, yeah, thanks for listening to our discussion of Zorro. And tune in next time as we will discuss The Revenant starring Leonardo DiCaprio. 